Assassins to another episode of the Dark Assassins Podcast, the show that dives deep into not just technology, but the concepts, software, and procedures behind it all, and explains it so simply that even your grandma can understand it. As always, I'm your host, the Dark Assassin. So the topic for this episode actually kind of comes from a conversation I was having um, this past week where I was running a backup job with my backup script that I've mentioned multiple times on the podcast, and uh, in case you're wondering, it still works. Uh, But I was talking about um, this idea of the way that I back up my... Uh, my NAS is that I archive everything and compress it into a, a single tar.gz or tarball file and then export that off my NAS onto my Xserve as a way to back it up since as of right now I don't technically have a off-site backup solution which I know is terrible. Um, I preach you should have an off-site backup but I currently really don't have one so if my uh, my house burns down RIP. Um, but I in fairness I am I am planning on addressing that. Um, I've been doing some research into potential solutions for that and I, I plan on trying to figure something out over the next few weeks or months or what have you, uh, but that is coming down the pipeline. But anyway, back to the archiving and stuff. So I, I got to talking about, you know, just kind of some basics of, you know, how, like, compression works and whatnot, and uh, the person I was telling it to, a uh, my mom, so, um, which I'm, I'm assuming she's probably listening, so hi, mom, um, she was wondering if I had done a uh, an episode on compression, and I was like, I don't think I have. Um, so here we go. We're going to be talking about compression today uh, in this episode, so be sure to strap in and get ready for that. But before we do, let's get into this week's trivia question. And on the topic of compression, the zip file format is one of the most common types of compression files um, that's out there. You'll see these on Windows, Mac OS, Linux, basically everywhere. Zip files are everywhere. And uh, this week's trivia question is what year was the zip file format released? So what year was the zip file format released? And that is your trivia question for the week. Now, I, I can't believe that I'm actually going to give this the time of day, but seeing all of the videos I've seen pop up and the podcasts that I listen to that it's been talked on, people seem to be really up in arms on both sides about uh, good old Elon's latest decision to change the name of Twitter to X. So in case you didn't know, Elon recently changed Twitter to X. And um, basically throughout this whole process, obviously I don't use Twitter or X, I guess. I have no skin in the game. I have absolutely really no opinion what happens here because I I could honestly care less. Uh, But hearing... All of the people's opinions on this just like really 
kind of showed me that man some people really have like a have a serious social media addiction now i i think it's fair to say that it's kind of i think it's generally pretty well known at this point that social media sites such as twitter facebook instagram snapchat you know all of the various social media platforms are are meant to be addictive like their intended purpose is to be addictive so you stay on the platform as long as possible so you can see as many ads as possible so the company that owns said platform can make as much money as possible and there's been even research shown that like internal research from companies like Facebook and Instagram um, that show that their platforms are addictive and they they keep it that way because that helps their bottom line, helps their shareholders, yada, yada, yada. So it's kind of well known that social media addiction is a thing and that that's kind of what it's designed for. Um, But it, it was definitely really on display, I think, the past few week and a half or however long it's been since this decision happened that some people are are seriously addicted to it because I'll tell you what it it's it's honestly sounded like group therapy sessions on some of these videos and podcasts that I listened to where they were just they were just only talking you know about Twitter and I guess X if we're calling it that now I don't, I don't know um, but th- it kind of sounded like a group therapy session because they were all like you know affirming each other that like yeah this is this is stupid or or why do people care it's just a name or you know whatever side they were on uh, because you, on the one hand you had the Twitter fanboys that were mad at Elon because because he changed the name to X and on the one hand Twitter fanboys. I agree with you. I think the name change is pretty dumb. But as I said, I could honestly care less because I never use the platform anyway. And then on the other hand, you have the Elon fanboys that are basically telling the Twitter fanboys to chill out because after all, it's just a name. So who really cares? It's the same platform. And then you have the Twitter fanboys firing back being like, yeah, it's just a name. So why bother changing it? And because you're changing it, you're you're killing the whole brand name of Twitter in the process. And I don't, I, 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 man, I really don't know what to say about this, but like, I could honestly care less. Um, but you know, the funny thing is, at least I find it kind of funny, is I'm supposedly part of this younger generation that is supposedly, quote, addicted to their phones and addicted to social media. But at the same time, I can't tell you how many times that I have been the only person that is not glued to my phone in a given space. Like, generally speaking, if I'm out in public, I am not on my phone. For a couple of reasons, one of them being I don't really want, you know, I I guess it's called shoulder surfers is, is I guess the term or basically like you're on your phone or you're on your computer doing something and someone's kind of looking over your shoulder to see what you're looking at. Um, I, I like my privacy. Um, I, I like not having people get all up in my business like that. Um, so that's one of the reasons why I don't do it. Um, the other reason I'm generally not on my phone is kind of going back in that same vein, like 
the internet's a wild place. If I'm scrolling through, you know, like some web page or some social media app or whatever, I don't know what I'm going to see. And depending on what I see, that could be kind of weird for, you know, public, someone in the public to see, you know, like, I don't know what kind of weird ads some random website's going to show me. Like, I'd I'd rather not have to deal with that. Uh, But anyway, I I can't tell you how many times I've seen, um, as as the kids these days would call them boomers or uh, older folks are like absolutely glued to their phones. Like sometimes, like I, I kid you not, I I have uh, gone walking before, and I I literally could have walked into straight up walked into someone and like plowed them over. And they wouldn't have even known because they were literally just glued eyes down at the phone the entire... They didn't even look up, like, the entire time that they were out walking. And I was like, my goodness. Jeez. Mm. Like, I get, like, you're outside, and that's step one. But, uh, you know, I I think we're just going to move on at this point because I'm kind of at a loss for words. And um, if, if you're like me and you've been hearing about all this stuff for the past week, you're probably sick of it too. So uh, we're just going to move on um, with this week's cybersecurity tip. So for this week's cybersecurity tip, this one is going out to all of the home labbers out there and all of those uh, dealing with infrastructure, specifically server infrastructure, whether you're in IT, whether you're doing DevOps, you know, whatever the case may be, if you're managing servers, uh, this cybersecurity tip is for you. Um, And especially if you have anything that is public facing, such as you're running something in the cloud, or you have a server that's facing the public internet. Um, And that is you should make sure that you harden your SSH connections, um, specifically using SSH keys and disabling the use of passwords. Now, I think it's safe to say that it's no secret that passwords generally aren't the best when it comes to security. Now, there's obviously a lot of uh, rules in place to improve the security of passwords, you know, having, ha- making them have to be a certain number of characters with, you know, special characters thrown in there, uppercase letters, um, you know, numbers, special characters, all that stuff to make the passwords harder to randomly guess. Uh, but at the end of the day, as we've discussed in the podcast before, there are things like rainbow tables um, that hackers can use, which are basically... Um, passwords that are pre-linked to hash values so they can just do a lookup of the hash values and know what the password is. Um, There are other dictionary attacks where they can run all of the various passwords in the dictionary through the the hashing algorithm to get outputs and compare those against, you know, passwords that they found in data breaches and whatnot. Um, So passwords... Generally, if you can use something stronger like public key encryption, like what SSH keys use, that's generally the the better way to go. Because as of right now, since quantum computers aren't really a thing, 
RSA-style public key encryption schemes are secure. Now, obviously, once quantum computers really come onto the scene, uh, that's not really going to be the case anymore. Um, but for what it's worth as of right now, um, using SSH keys to log in to your servers is definitely the way to go. Plus, if you're using SSH keys to log into your servers, you don't have to worry about even using a password and typing anything in, you literally just can SSH and then, you know, the username and host name or IP address or domain or however you log in, and then you're just logged in because the SSH key authentication, basically how it works is you give the server your public key, and then in the process of you connecting, you basically do the basically do a handshake and because you have the private key theoretically anyway you're the only person that should have said private key so you that that's how you authenticate yourself and you don't have to worry about uh, providing a password or anything because you have the private key which is the way that you authenticate yourself um, now another thing that you should also be doing to harden your ssh uh, port is to disable access to the root user to log in via ssh so you should not be able to log in as root into a machine via ssh now you can't that's not to say that like you can't have any user have root privileges you just shouldn't be able to log in as root into the system and i think it should be kind of obvious why you don't want that to happen because if you log in as root by default anything you type happens any command you execute runs with without any confirmation of if you want to do it or not. Now, if you're just a regular user and you have root privileges, if you try to run something as root or run a command that needs root privileges, you'll have to be prompted for a, for a password or some other kind of form of authentication in order to actually perform that action. So, you know, an additional level of security there. So you don't want attackers having that, you know, easy street access of get random of guessing the root password getting in as root and being able to do what apps whatever they want to your machine so this is another reason why you shouldn't have passwords enabled for your ssh connections because then they even if they knew the root password they wouldn't even be able to log in anyway because there's because passwords are disabled. And similarly in that same vein, if you just completely disable the ability for the root user to log in, then that's another uh, hole that you patched because you know, you're know you denying another way that an attacker could get in. Um, and the reason why I say this is especially something you should do if you have a public facing infrastructure like something in the cloud is because anything that's accessible on the public internet you're going to have constant attacks of people trying to get into your machine and if you want to see this for yourself uh, I wouldn't recommend doing it with a device on your home network, but if you wanted to like spin up uh, a VM in the cloud or something, by all means, go ahead and do that, and then just let it let it sit there for you know a few weeks or a month or so, and then look at the SSH logs. Look at the logs of how many times some random 
IP address or something tried to log into your server via SSH. It's you're, you're going to be kind of spooked by how many times someone tried to log into your machine. So by not allowing passwords at all, that is definitely an amazing way to improve the security of the system. Um, and obviously denying the ability for root to log in is another awesome way. Because a lot of the times uh, when people are trying to log into your server, uh, via SSH, they're trying to log in as root for obvious reasons. Um, so disabling the root user and and disabling passwords and only allowing SSH keys is definitely what you should be doing. Uh, for me personally, um, I only have one machine that's in the cloud, which I use as a, a VPN um, and a, an external DNS server. And that as you can guess, root user is disabled, and the only way that I can log into it is via SSH keys. So if I ever want to add a new device in order to be able to log into that from another device, basically what I have to do is I have to manually, from a device that's already authenticated, copy the SSH, the new device's public SSH key over, um, and then I can log in from the device, which is a little bit more of a hassle. But as we've talked about on the podcast, um, the more secure something is, generally the more hoops and steps you have to go through in order to actually be able to accomplish the task you want. Um, so there is that trade-off, obviously, but it is definitely something that you should be doing, and that is your cybersecurity tip for the week. Now, if you've been listening to the podcast for the past few episodes, you, you're probably wondering what the heck happened to my home lab because I really haven't talked about it much at all the past few weeks. I've been really caught up on my various programming projects, but that changes this week. And um, I guess with that, I guess we're, we're just rolling right on into what nerdy stuff have I been up to this week. So this week, the first thing that I guess we can talk about is I mentioned, I believe in last week's episode, uh, how I created Docker containers for, for my personal websites. And I was planning on trying to work that into a CI/CD pipeline to, you know, auto-create the Docker containers and uh, auto-deploy them. So I got the first few steps of that accomplished this week. So the first thing that I had to do was I had to create a GitLab runner. So I'm using, I have a personal self-hosted instance of GitLab running in my house and in order to use CI/CD pipelines, I have to have a GitLab runner. Now, if you're using just the GitLab.com, um, the main GitLab site, um, you can you probably don't really need to have your own runner unless you're doing something you know super specific. Um, you can just use the ones provided by GitLab. Now, you do have to be careful with that because it, depending on what what tier you're in, uh, specifically the free tier, you're limited to how many like minutes that you can run um, in a given time window. So that is something you have to be cautious about. But obviously, if you're, you're self-hosting it 
there's no limit. Um, so, uh, but regardless, even if you do um, use GitLab.com, the main GitLab site, you can host your own runners and have the projects run on your own runners. Uh, but that's kind of besides the point. So basically, since I'm self-hosting it, obviously I needed a GitLab runner. Um, so I created that, um, which allowed me to, to run my CICD pipelines. Plus it's on my own hardware. Um, so I know nothing is being saved and you know everything's all good there um it's all local and internal um and i did actually manage to get a, a basic cicd pipeline set up so what will happen is i can just whenever i want to whenever i commit my changes and push them to my internal gitlab server it will automatically uh, build the Docker container and push that Docker container to the uh, internal container registry um, on the on the GitLab inter my internal GitLab site. So then, on any machine on my network, I could easily just pull that container down and be ready to go. Um, now the next step that I want to try to implement, I haven't really looked into it too much yet because I, I got this win and I wanted to savor it a little bit, I guess. Plus, as we'll see, I got into other things as well. Um, but the next thing I kind of want to do is, so I got the container building and adding to the registry every time I, I push my changes, but I'm not automatically deploying it. So I got part of the the DevOps thing going there, part of the CI/CD pipeline, but I don't have the the deployment right. I'm not I'm not deploying it anywhere. Um, so that's going to be the next thing that I plan on looking into with that. Um, now another thing, home lab related, is I um I may or may not have bricked my Grafana dashboard that I use for monitoring my servers and my internet connection. Um, and when I say I may or may not have, I'm pretty sure we all know that I totally bricked that thing. Um, so basically what happened here was I was trying to update the Docker containers um, on my, my server that runs all my Docker containers. Um, and in the process of doing that, I thought I was being slick by uh, modifying one of the Docker Compose files that held like the database functionality um, for monitoring my individual servers through IPMI. And I thought I was being slick, being able to modify which image it was pulling down, and that caused basically everything to break. Now, it still had all the queries and everything in there, but it uh, it failed to connect to the database and wasn't able to pull anything and just caused all kinds of errors. So um, here is another fantastic instance where I, a code monkey, occasionally break stuff in my home lab. Now, I did manage to get it working again. I basically um, removed my what I thought was genius move, genius IQ move of updating the image back to what it was originally. And surprise, surprise, doing that fixed the issue. Because um, if something wasn't, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Um, that, that's a saying out there. So I, I probably should have took that advice and not even messed with it in the first place. Uh, but now I know, I guess. Um, now, in addition, speaking of Docker and updating my containers, one thing that with Docker 
that is a little annoying to me anyway is when you run like your your generic system updates docker does not update in the sense that your containers don't update unless you manually update them so even if you have your container set to restart automatically they don't automatically pull down and pull down the new versions of containers and essentially rebuild them to automatically update themselves on restart now granted i am no docker expert so there is maybe some way that you can do that in your docker compose file or whatever that will automatically pull down the latest versions of the images if needed and manually do the updates that way so you don't have to worry about it but if that is a thing you can do i am not aware of it at least as of right now um so what i decided to do was I decided to write a script to automatically do it for me. And the way I wrote this script was I made it configurable through like an XML style file where you can basically put in the location to all the various folders where you have your Docker Compose files um, or Docker files to build your Docker containers. And it'll go through each one of those folders and do the process of updating, pulling down the new images, removing any dangling or old images that it no longer needs anymore, rebuilding any Docker containers that it needs that you have Docker files for that you want to be rebuilt. You can specify that in the config file, um, and then it'll bring all the contain all the the containers back up um, and do that all manually and do that all automatically. Um, all you have to do is is run the script and make sure your config file is right. And the reason why I wanted to have the config file was I have obviously I have the the server uh, at my house that runs Docker containers, but the um, the server I, I mentioned that I have in the cloud also that also is running Docker containers. So being able to have not have to worry about changing the script and only having to modify the config file uh, was definitely the move and the reason why I went that route. Um, now obviously, I could not be bothered to do the peasant work that is to manually log in to each one of these servers and run the script. That is obviously way too much effort um, for a lazy code monkey like myself. Um, I'm not about to do that peasant work. No, no, no. Um, and as you might be able to guess if you listen to the podcast for a while, uh, you know that I am a pretty big fan of Ansible when it comes to managing my infrastructure and my servers. So naturally, what I did was I wrote an Ansible playbook to do this automatically for me. But again, having to run a single Ansible playbook just to update my Docker containers in addition to running an Ansible playbook to update all my servers was again too much work because that's now two commands that I have to type in to update my servers. And that's just way too much work. So naturally what I did was I integrated that Ansible playbook to update my Docker containers and included that into my 
I guess, master Ansible playbook for updating servers. Um, so now this Ansible playbook that updates all my servers now updates all the Pi-hole instances. It updates my Bitwarden containers because that has its own um, methodology of how to update stuff. Um, there's an include, I believe there's, a, it's a .sh, I believe it's a shell script that does all that for you. Um, so that's included in the update script. Now I have update updating all my dockers included in the update script. I have updating just in general all the servers, removing any packages that need to be removed, um, checking if you need to reboot the systems and rebooting them. So it is a absolute lazy guy's masterpiece because literally all I do and and even and to make this even better by the way I have a bash alias assigned so I don't even have to bother typing in ansible playbook uh, well actually I guess first navigating to the directory and then typing ansible playbook and then you know the name of the playbook I don't even have to do that I can just type in update servers hit enter and watch the magic happen and you know what if I don't even want to watch the magic happen because I don't want to see it and I want to go do other stuff I can type update servers BG for background and it'll run the process in the background I can close out of the terminal be on my merry way and all of my servers will you know update and do what they need to do all the output will be written to a log file and I can check that at my leisure um, so it, yeah if you've never used Ansible before and you have a home lab um, in my honest opinion, you are seriously missing out because it definitely makes your life a heck of a lot easier. Um, but that's not where the home lab uh, stuff for me stopped this week because another thing I did was I, I call it a reverse proxy, but in all reality, it's really not. It's basically just a glorified forwarding service because if you've done stuff with like docker containers and other various services like plex or jellyfin or something like that that use port number that have web portals but they don't use port 80 or 443 um, which is http and https respectively which is just you know the default port numbers for for those protocols um you know that you have to manually type in those port numbers in order to get to the site you want. And if you're trying to use DNS um, or do the you know the domain service system, so rather than typing in an IP address, you can just type a, a human readable name. So rather than like 192.168.1.55 colon, I guess it's uh, 32400, I think is Plex. Uh, rather than typing in that nonsense, uh, you would just type, you know, plex dot something dot. Say you you have a d internal domain um, dot local dot net. Say um, so you, instead of you could instead just type plex dot local dot net. The problem is DNS doesn't allow you to specify port numbers, so you can't do that unless you have some kind of 
proxy or forwarding service kind of setup, which is basically what I did here. Um, so what I did was I, I set up a what I called a reverse proxy, but again, it's really just forwarding uh, because literally what it does is if you type in, say, plex.local.net, it will receive that request, see the, the domain name is plex.local.net, and then just forward you to the appropriate IP address and port of my Plex server. Same thing for Jellyfin, same thing for my various Docker containers and whatnot. It'll just automatically forward you to that site, to that IP address. And it's really obvious because unlike a reverse proxy server where the domain name actually stays in the title bar, the title bar just gets completely changed to whatever the IP address of the um, device that I'm trying to connect to is. So it's not a actual reverse proxy, but it, it kind of sort of serves the same purpose. And honestly, it's good enough for me since I can type in the domain names now rather than having to remember all the various port numbers. And for me, that was a pretty big win. And another very big win that I had was I got all of my Proxmox hypervisors updated to Proxmox VE8. So there, there's a new version of Proxmox out. I believe it came out, um, I want to say back in June, I believe, uh, whenever Debian 12 came out. So Debian 12 uh, came out back in June of this year. Uh, Debian 12 Bookworm is the name of it. Um, so it came out in June, and to my surprise... Um, my hypervisor's all updated without issues, which seeing that it's is my home lab and I occasionally break stuff, I was kind of expecting something not to go totally according to plan, uh, but thankfully it did. Now, I, I did toil with the idea of writing an Ansible playbook to automatically update all my hypervisors at once, and just, you know, full send it and not have to worry about it. But um, I, I decided against that for a couple reasons. Now, it wouldn't have been the end of the world because I had recently run backups for all of my VMs. So I had fresh backups of all my VMs. So in the event that one of the updates would have completely bricked one of my hypervisors and I would have had to reinstall Proxmox, I could have easily gotten all, recovered all those VMs back by restoring the VMs from the backup. So it wouldn't have been a huge deal, but at the end, but also at the same time, I'd rather not spend probably in all reality multiple days restoring the I don't even know, over 20, 25. I I have a problem. I have I have way too many VMs, way too many servers, way too many services. But that's besides the point. It would have taken a while to restore all that. So ideally, I would have liked to avoid that if possible, which I did. Um, and taking the more cautious route of making sure everything was going according to plan, carefully, you know, looking at the the various options that it you know brought up in the update process um, as far as do I want to change this file or do I want to keep my local version or take the, the newer version and all that stuff I wanted to to make sure things went according to plan um, so that was definitely an undertaking but I'm happy that I, I managed to, to get all those updated to the latest version so that was a big win so now getting into kind of the I guess the preamble 
for our talk on compression. So uh, I mentioned at the very beginning of this episode that the reason for talking about compression kind of came up because I was running my backup script um, to archive my NAS. And um, boy, oh boy, was that a good thing I did that because um, RAID basically saved my NAS. Um, little off-topic, little tangent here. Um, but as a quick refresher of what RAID is, RAID is the, uh, the redundant array of independent or inexpensive, depending on who you ask, disks. And basically what this allows you to do is combine multiple disks together to basically look like one disk to the operating system. Um, and it can offer things like redundancy, um, or being able to lose a disk and not lose any of your data, and or improve the overall write speed of your array or disk in this case. Um, so if you have, um, say, four disks, and depending on how you set up your RAID, you can get significantly faster uh, speed performance in your reads and writes, depending, again, depending on how you configure it, compared to just one drive. Um, so that's a brief uh, brief recap on what RAID is, but I'll, uh, as uh, as the uh, I guess the obligatory comment when you're talking about RAID, RAID is not a backup, so you actually should have a legitimate backup. Now, RAID saved me because I mentioned earlier again in the podcast that I was looking into some possible offsite backup solutions and. One of those solutions, well, there's a couple, I guess, solutions, but they basically allow you block storage, essentially, and through TrueNAS, you can basically sync uh, to these, you know, cloud solutions. And I was trying to look into, you know, basically how I would go about doing that. And in the process of doing that, I obviously had to log in to my TrueNAS server, which is my NAS. And... I noticed that it said that my um, my array was degraded, which is not good. It is less than ideal. And I saw that one of the drives had faulted. And coincidentally, I believe it faulted on the on the day that I was running my backup script, which I don't think is necessarily a coincidence. Um, but anyway, if I didn't have raid, if I didn't have my NAS set up in a RAID array, I probably would have lost my entire NAS during that process of doing the backup. Oops. Uh, but because the backup was completed and I have that copy, I'm really not that worried if the NAS decides to uh, kick the bucket before the new hard drives that I frantically ordered to replace the, the dead one or faulted one arrive. So... That will definitely be a process. Uh, I'll get to experience what rebuilding a RAID array is like, um, so that should be fun. Uh, but then, but the reason why I, I kind of bring this up was this is kind of where um, the idea of compression came in, and you know, my backup script it compresses the all the NAS, my, all the files on my NAS into a single archive file, and then offloads it to my XServe. That's my current solution um, for backing up my NAS. Um, but in all reality, I say it compresses it, but if you look at the size of the compress compressed file versus the total size of data on the NAS, they're 
basically the same, um, which I don't think is necessarily that big of a surprise because the majority of the data on my NAS is things like backing up my pictures from my phone, backing up uh, my media library, backing up all the VMs that I are backed up from Proxmox. And all these things are already pretty darn compressed. And seeing that that's the largest portion of the data on my NAS, it's not necessarily that much of a surprise that there really isn't much compression going on. Because if you try to compress something that's already compressed, you're really not going to see uh, much of an improvement when it comes to file size. Now, I think that's a great segue into talking about compression. So when it comes to compression, there's a couple main types, I guess you could say, when it comes to like file types. So obviously, probably your most common one is your .zip or your zip files. Um, another one is 7-zip or .7z is what the, the file extension is. And then another one is .rar files. Those are, I think, more commonly on Windows rather than uh, like Mac OS and Linux. And then you have tar and gzip. Um, those are usually kind of combined together to be your tar.gz. Um, those are definitely more common on Linux-based systems, although you do can also see those on macOS as well. And rarely will you see them natively on Windows, mainly because I don't believe Windows really has out-of-the-box support for tar.gz files i think it, now i'm pretty sure if you download like say the 7-zip program you'll be able to extract uh, tar.gz files um, but generally those are more for for like linux machines and unix based systems and whatnot um, so when, when we talk about compression i'm obviously not going to go over every single compression algorithm um, and every single form of compression because quite honestly we'd be here for uh, probably the next year, month, I don't know, we'd be here a while because there's a lot. And I'm sure you could honestly probably take like an entire course in college uh, specifically for compression because that, that's just how big of a scope this is. And you could probably even do your PhD on it if you really wanted to. Obviously that I'm not doing that, but I mean, that's something you could probably do if you were interested. Um, so... I guess one thing that we should start with is let's just start with a super, a couple super basic examples of compression in action and kind of give you a sense of how it works. So a super basic example uh, will specifically apply to text because I think text, applying compression to text is kind of the easiest to visualize and understand rather than diving head into how do I convert this uh, movie file, this from, you know, the, the, the raw film from the camera, and how do I convert that down from however many hundreds of gigabytes or however big the file is down to like five gigabytes or I don't know, I'm making these numbers up, right? Like, how do you compress, like, movie files? I think that's a, not as easy to understand as compressing text. So we're going to start there. So the first method that I can just kind of come up with off the top of my head when it comes to uh, compressing text is basically replacing duplicates. So in this case, assume you have 
any instance where you have more than two letters in a given sequence, so say, for example, you have four A's, what you can do is rather than typing out four A's, you could just do like A and then the number four, and then you compressed four characters down to two. So that's a super basic version of compression. Obviously, that algorithm probably would be pretty bad um, because I don't think there's a whole lot of instances in the English language specifically where you would have a lot of repeat letters in a row like that that you could actually make use of this unless, I guess, maybe you're um, doing like text messages of like super enthusiastic uh, people where they add like a bunch of letters at the end of their uh, their words or something. Uh, so obviously you probably won't really see much compression through this method, but this is a super basic method that you could pretty easily write uh, a program to, to do for you if you wanted to, um, and just a super basic compression algorithm where you take multiple and the reason why you'd want to do two or more than two is because if you say have two a's if you change two a's to a2 you still have two characters so you you don't really save any space so it's really not worth doing um now a more advanced approach to this would be doing a lookup table index or a dictionary approach now this approach basically kind of, I guess you could say, exploits the English language in a way. Um, so basically the idea here is, there's, well, I guess there's a couple methods to it. The first and more, I guess, more universal, if you will, um, is to basically take the most common words, say, in the English language, like the, be, to, of, you know, etc., the, the most common words, and you basically assign them a number. And then whenever you see that word in the text you're trying to compress, you replace that word with the number. So a basic example here, um, if you take the, now I guess back up a step, um, other super common words are the word A, which is you know just the letter A and I, or the letter I. And obviously this really wouldn't, work that well in these cases because you're replacing one character with one character um, and obviously it would be even worse if your id for the index for say the word a was like 10 because then you actually just made it worse by adding two characters for one so you'd, you'd have to be careful on how you assigned your indexes um, and your ids but if we take, say, the the play of Macbeth, um, if you run that through a, a word counter, you'll find that the word the and and are the top two most common words in the, the entire play, appearing 534 and 410 times, respectively. Um, so if you were to assign, um, say, the and and, the IDs of one and two, and because the number one and number two would take up one byte and the word the and, and are three characters, which would be three bytes, uh, basically what you would do is, since you're compressing, every time you see the word the, you replace it with a one, and every time you see the word and, you replace it with a two, you would take this 534 word plus 410 word, 
add those together, multiply it by three because each word has three characters or three bytes, that would give you 200 or 2,832 bytes combined for every instance of the and and. And because you replaced those instances of the and and with the numbers one and two, which are each one character or one byte, you reduce that 2,832 bytes down to just 944 bytes. So a pretty decent, pretty good reduction in size uh, for that compression. Now, another way you could also do this is generally you're probably going to run into the the same instance here because how common the word the is uh, but another way that you could also do this uh, lookup is you basically would have to read through the entire text you're trying to compress and find the most common words and then you could dynamically assign the indexes that way to the most common words. Now obviously this would take more processing power because you'd first have to scan the entire uh, text that you're trying to compress, not to mention it would also use a lot more memory because you'd have to be dynamically keeping track of, you know, the most common words and whatnot. So it wouldn't necessarily be as fast as using a common lookup table of the most common words in the English language. But at the same time, depending on what kind of text you're trying to compress, you would be able to see size-wise, you'd be able to get much better results because theoretically you could be, um, depending on the, the text you're trying to see, you might have some more complex words that would show up more frequently than, say, the more common words in the English language. Um, so that is potentially another option you could do for your compression. And this idea of kind of a lookup table index thing or a dictionary approach is actually the approach commonly used in the LZ Adaptive Dictionary-based algorithm, where LZ stands for Lempel-Ziv. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, it, where that algorithm is used to uh, shrink files where you replace the most common words with numbers. So basically the example that we just described. Um, so the example we just described is actually a commonly used algorithm uh, when it comes to compression. Um, now you can actually take this a step further if you want to get more complex with your, your compression algorithm, where rather than just replacing individual words, you replace them with, you replace phrases with numbers. So if you have a lot of very common phrases um, throughout your the text you're trying to archive, you could replace the phrases rather than just the individual words. So if, for instance, you have a, um, a text with a lot of dialogue in it, and you have a lot of he said or she said or they exclaimed or, you know, something like that, very common phrases, um, you could replace each one of those with an index and then a, which would even further compress your file size because now you're taking multiple words so even more characters than just a single word and compressing it down to a number which would significantly reduce the number of bytes and thus add even more compression and make an even smaller file size. Now, so far up to this point, the kinds of compression 
that we've been talking about is known as lossless compression. And this is a type of compression that, in other words, basically means that you can replicate the file exactly to how it was before it was compressed. And the reason you can do this is because in the instances of doing the lookup tables or dictionaries, you obviously have a, a lookup for all the various numbers, right? So when I'm trying to decompress the file, every time I see the number one, I know that that correlates to the word the, so I can replace one with the word the. And then every time I see the number two, I know that that rep represents and, so I can re replace the number two with the word and. And say if you're doing it phrase-based, Say, every time I see the phrase, she said, I can replace every, well, I guess, say that's index three. Um, every time I see the number three, I can replace that with she said. And by the end of it, I will get an exact replica of what the file was before it was compressed. And this is what's known as lossless compression, or you don't lose anything lossless. You don't lose anything. So that's lossless compression. Now, Another type of compression that's very commonly used nowadays is called lossly compression. Now, this is more commonly used for things like your Im for images, audio files, videos, and other kinds of digital media. Now, unlike lossless compression, lossy compression, you actually do lose some of the data that was in the original version. But how the compression is done, it's meant to uh, be done in such a way where you don't necessarily notice that data was lost during the compression. Um, so various types of lossly compression, you can kind of think of this as your, your video encodings, like your H.264 and 265, um, various different kinds of photo encodings, like your JPEG, your PNG, uh, your audio files, like your MP3s, M4As, ACC, etc. You know, those kind, all those various kinds of formats are different types of lossly compression for, you know, video, audio, and uh, digital images and whatnot. Um, so these algorithms, basically how they work is they remove the non-essential details that you would otherwise not notice in order to save space. Now, obviously, I think it kind of goes without saying that these algorithms are a lot more complex than your simple, oh, I saw this word, so I'm going to replace it with this number. Um, it's, it's a little bit more complex than that. Uh, but basically, the, the kind of the premise of how it works is, say you have a picture of a landscape. And, or maybe it's a portrait of you with a, a, a nature landscape in the background. So the original picture file might have incredible detail with all the blades of grass in the background. But in reality, if they're kind of all the way in the background and how you took the portrait was mainly focused on your face rather than the background in general, you're probably really not going to notice the individual blades of grass. So what the, the compression algorithm in this case might do is kind of smooth over those fine details of the blades of grass to make it a little more fuzzy, I guess you could say. 
but not necessarily to the point where you'd really notice it much. But because it's kind of reducing the number of details in those those spots that you probably wouldn't notice, you're able to reduce the file size. Um, so while you do technically lose data, in theory you don't necessarily lose quality depending on the kind of compression you use, how much you use, and whatnot. And in extreme cases, uh, if you ever see any kind of videos or images that look kind of blurry or fuzzy, this is generally due to an overcompression, um, or they just used a potato camera or potato video recorder or something like that, in which case the compression probably didn't do too much and it's just a terrible quality. Uh, but if you took something with, say, like a high-resolution camera or high-resolution you know, video recorder or whatever, um, and the, the image comes out blurry or kind of fuzzy, that's probably due to uh, too much compression going on. Um, so that is one thing that you can look out for. Um, and this is kind of also why you'll notice um, things like JPEGs are generally a lot smaller um, than other types, other image file types like PNGs, for example. Usually PNGs are bigger, but they generally have a higher quality to them. And, and specifically, if you're looking at like bitmap images, like bitmap images are compared to JPEGs pretty massive, but the quality of a bitmap image is significantly better than a JPEG because the JPEG uses so much more compression to get a much smaller file size. Um, so that's that's when it specifically when it comes to images. Now, when it comes to video, if you actually break down what a video is, all a video is is just a sequence of images, right? So basically what you can do to compress videos is if you see a common theme or a common feature throughout multiple frames, like say um, you have a, a stagnant background in the back, right? What you could do is you could identify that and then basically kind of remove it from, because you don't need it in every frame if it's always constant in every single frame. You can kind of remove that um, from certain frames and kind of blend them to blend the backgrounds together to still have that there, but, you know, reduce the file size. So that that's basically how, you know, you compress videos is basically going through and modifying the individual images in the video. Um, so that that is also one of the reasons why if you've ever tried to compress video or encode video, uh, you kind of need a decent amount of horsepower um, on your machine if you want it to not take a bajillion years because all the, the processing that has to go on in order to compress that down and reduce the file size. Um, and then similarly, when it comes to audio files, it's kind of a similar, a similar thing where you take out stuff that people probably wouldn't notice. Um, now, there is lossless audio out there, which, uh, as the name kind of implies, uh, it's like full quality, nothing's been compressed, nothing. Obviously, the file sizes are huge, and you need to have, you know, proper speakers or headphones to actually be able to, and proper audio equipment to actually be able to listen to that in its uh, full quality. Um, but the way compression of, like, audio files works is it'll basically take 
you know, the stuff that you necessarily wouldn't notice. Um, like, for example, if there's frequencies in the audio track that fall outside the human range of hearing, you can just cut that out because you're not going to hear it anyway. So you can cut those frequencies out and save some space that way. Um, so that's that's a super basic way of, of you know, compressing audio. Um, and also another way, depending on the algorithm, maybe if there's like some super faint or very inaudible low volume parts of the track maybe you kind of cut those out or something um, so there's definitely different ways that you can compress audio uh, but definitely the easiest one would be if there's if you see frequencies that fall outside the range of human hearing just remove those because the humans aren't going to hear it anyway so you can reduce the file size a little bit so we've talked about compression, some various kinds. We've talked about the two major kinds, lossless, uh, which basically means you can fully replicate the file once you decompress it. And then you have lossy compression, which some data is lost in the, in the process of compressing it. So when you try to play that back or you try to view the image, it's not going to, not all the data is going to be there from the original. Um, so those are the two main kinds. We also kind of went over uh, the various types, um, you know, like in the, in the lossless version, you know, that LZ adaptive dictionary based algorithm um, in the lossy versions, the various kinds of audio and video encodings and whatnot. But what are the actual use cases for compression? Now, obviously, as we kind of were touching on in the images and the, and the lossy versions of compression, you obvious as as cool as it is to you know have a, the the videos and movies in their full quality if i can basically get the same exact quality through compression and have a fraction of the file size i will take the fraction of a file size because it's a lot easier to manage you know movies that are a few gigabytes than hundreds of gigabytes for a single movie. Um, obviously, if you if you have hundreds of gigabytes for like a single movie or tens of gigabytes for a single image, you're gonna run out of space a lot quicker than if you're using compression to essentially get basically the same quality um, for a significantly reduced file size. Um, so so it's amazing if space is a premium and you want to save space. Another way that reason that compression is really good is because it's excellent. It's also excellent for data hoarders that don't want to get rid of stuff, but also kind of realize they're running out of space so they can archive the stuff so they don't have to lose it. Um, again, like I said, archiving, it's fantastic for archiving stuff. Um, like things like, you know, if you have digital records of maybe like your medical history or your your taxes or something else that you don't really need on a regular basis but you definitely don't want to lose and it's good to have around um, you can compress all that stuff into a single file and have that archived um, so whenever you do need it or if you ever need it you still have it um, and then you can just decompress it uh, to get that data back um, 
rather than having it, you know, take up more space than it actually needs. Um, and, and on that subject, it's also great for improving file transfers. So whether you're transferring it from, say, one drive on your system to another, or you're transferring it to a USB stick, or to burning it to a CD, or you're transferring it over the network, it's a lot quicker to transfer one large file than a lot of individual smaller files because it's a lot easier and faster to send over large blocks of data rather than a bunch of little itty bitty ones. And if you don't believe me, then take a large folder with a, like say a bunch of images or something or, or Word documents. That's probably a better example. Take a bunch of Word documents and try to copy them, see how long it takes, and then compress all that into a single file and do the copy again. And I guarantee you the transfer speed on the single archive file that you compressed is going to be a lot quicker than copying over all the individual files. And the smaller the file size, the slower the overall speed's going to be. So if you want some improved file transfers, archiving is one way to do it, which is actually one of the reasons why I archive my NAS before I do the backup for it because if I didn't do that, like obviously it takes a while to archive the well over it, almost close to two terabytes at this point worth of data. It does take a while, but at the same time, if I was trying to copy all those super small files, my transfer speeds would absolutely tank. So being able to essentially sustain the full speed of the, the gigabit connection between my devices is going to be quicker than, you know, the kilobits per second that I might encounter at times copying all the little itty bitty files all at once. So while it might have more overhead, it well, definitely does have more overhead having to archive everything, the actual transfer speed is uh, a lot quicker. Um, so, so that's another good reason for um, archiving stuff and uh, I'm trying to think if there's any other that are that are really good um, it, it's basically a, a great way that you can you know if you, if you don't necessarily need something or you're running out of space or you want to transfer something quickly it, it's fantastic for that now there's kind of some debates out there about you know which compression type is better whether you should be using 7-zip for smaller file sizes or whether you should be using zip files or tars or whatever the case may be but part of it also comes down to what are you compressing right like as i mentioned earlier uh, in this compression discussion depending on what you're compressing you're not actually going to see much improvement uh, in file size, right? Like if, for example, if you're, like I mentioned in, in my use case, you know, I'm compressing a lot of images, audio files, video files, um, and backups from my, my VMs. And as we discussed, the, the images, videos, and audio files are already compressed files, right? So if you try to compress something that's already compressed, there, there's really not much that can be done um, in terms of the the lossless compression, because that's you know what I'm doing when I'm creating the the tars here, uh, it's a, it's a lossless version, so they can be 
fully recreated upon decompression. So if you're taking something that's already compressed and trying to make it a losslessly compressed even further, you're, you're really not going to see much difference. Um, so that is one thing to keep in mind if you are looking at um, potentially archiving stuff and compressing things is you might not see as big of a f reduction in file size as you expect depending on what you're trying to archive now with that said as I'm as we mentioned when it comes to transfer speeds transferring one large file is going to be quicker than transferring a lot of smaller files so even if you have a lot of already compressed files that are kind of smaller that you're really not going to see much improvement in, in file size on by compressing it. If you compress it all into one single file, it'll be a lot quicker to move that file around to, you know, external drives or transferring over the network or what have you. Um, so it is definitely something to consider. Um, it's not like just because you want to, you want to compress a folder, you're going to, you know, immediately you know cut out like 50 gigabytes or something like that like that it's a little bit unrealistic um, but depending on what you are compressing you can see some pretty significant significant gains or I guess reductions um, in file size but it really kind of depends on on what you're trying to compress and then to I guess potentially to a lesser extent um, the the file format you're using for the compression and the compression algorithm. Um, but honestly, any of the ones that we've kind of talked about here are going to do a pretty good job uh, when it comes to reducing your file size, assuming that you're compressing stuff that can be compressed. Um, but if you really want to get into the weeds by all means go like look at comparisons have multiple archive uh programs installed on your computer and compare them and and see which one works for you uh because there is the chances are depending on what kind of files you're compressing um one you know compression algorithm might work really good for one folder you have on your machine but then another folder with different files maybe that that first algorithm doesn't work as good on the second one. So it's it's definitely something to play around with um, and to see which one works best for you. Uh, but at the end of the day, I mean, still having one file that you can easily transfer around as an archive is, is definitely a lot easier to manage um, and a lot faster to move around, as I said, than a bunch of little ones. Um, so that that's kind of a the wild world of compression it's definitely something that's really cool um, so if you're out there looking for a personal programming project how about you write your own compression algorithm not necessarily a a lossy compression algorithm for images and videos unless you're an absolute mad lad in which case by all means go for it uh, but start with something you know more simple right start with one of those like dictionary based uh, compression algorithms where you you read in a file, you look through it, find the common words and replace them with say numbers and then export that and boom, you wrote your own compression algorithm. So if you're looking for a cool project to impress some people, there you go. So that is going to do it for this episode, but we're not quite done yet because we still have to answer our trivia question for the week. So if you'll recall in the spirit of talking about compression, 
the zip file format is probably one of the most common when it comes to compression. And what year was the zip file format released? And if you said 1989, congratulations, you are correct. And if you're an absolute baller and said February 14th, 1989, bonus points for, er, yeah, bonus points for you. So congratulations if you got that right. 1989, kind of a little bit ago, a little bit ago. Um... So congratulations if you got that right. Been around a little bit. Uh, but that is going to do it for this episode. So if you enjoyed it, I ask that you leave it a rating and review. And subscribe to the Dark Assassins podcast if you haven't done so already. And be sure to share this episode with a friend or family member. Maybe someone that wants to learn about compression. Uh, or if you want to make them stay to the end to learn about the programming project idea of writing their own compression algorithm, there's one for you. Um, and if you have any questions about this episode or have any comments or questions for future episodes, uh, shoot me an email at contact at darkassassinsinc.com. The link is down in the show notes below. And that's going to do it for me in this episode of the Dark Assassins podcast. Until next time, my fellow assassins, remember... Bull nothing equals true. If action not equal to null, return true. I'll see you next time on the Dark Assassin's Podcast.